welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I hope you and your friends and your family are all well, healthy, and safe in these strange times. And I appreciate you coming back and listening into the podcast. And on this week's episode, I'm very excited to have Nicholas Elmquist, who's a full professor at the College of Information Studies at the University of Maryland in College Park, Maryland, which is just a short drive away from my home here in Northern Virginia. Uh, I reached out to Nicholas because he does some really great work at the University of Maryland. And in particular, we talk about his work on accessibility, which as you probably know, has been a subject of a couple of different uh, interviews uh, and episodes over the last few months. And we also talk about his work on uh, animation and data visualization. So we sit down and talk about all these different issues and it's a great conversation and I hope you will enjoy it. Um, Before I get to that, I just wanted to let you know that my new book, Better Data Visualizations, uh, is finally out for pre-order on Amazon. Uh, The book is hopefully going to come out this fall. It's all done. Uh, We're in the last stages of finishing the proofs and getting everything laid out. So I'm very excited for this book. Um, It's uh, a book that I had put off writing for many years and finally sat down and was able to uh, pull this thing together. And um, I'm really excited uh, about what I was able to put into it and the ground I was able to cover in in just one book. So I'm very excited for that. If you're interested, please do head over uh, to Amazon and take a look at it and maybe uh, submit your pre-order. I put the link in the show notes. So again, I hope everyone's well in these strange times of the COVID pandemic, and I hope you are staying safe and staying healthy and staying inside and taking care of yourselves and friends and neighbors and loved ones. So uh, on to this week's interview with Nicholas Elmfist. I hope you will enjoy it. And here we go. Hi, Nicholas. How are you? How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. Uh, a little bit of a rainy day today, but that's okay. Um, get to just look out into the world as I sit here working, just get to look beyond my computer into the world. Um, well, thanks for taking time out of your day and coming on the show. There's a couple strands of your research that I'm, I'm interested in focusing on uh, and chatting about. And so maybe for folks who aren't familiar with your work, you can talk about your background and, and the lab over there at the University of Maryland, and then I can pester you with, uh, with questions. <laughs> sure. So I'm Nicholas Elmquist. I'm a professor at the University of Maryland in the iSchool Information Studies, Informatics and also the director of the Human Computer Interaction Laboratory, the HCIL, which is actually the oldest HCI lab, I'm told, in North America. We were funded in 1983 Mm. by Ben Schneiderman. And I'm the sixth or seventh director, depending on how you count. And just like Ben, who founded the lab, I'm also a data visualization researcher. And I teach also on data visualization, data science, and actually also a little bit of game design recently. I'm, I'm a gamer as well. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Okay. So we can, I didn't know that. So we can talk about that a little bit too. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> do you want to talk a little bit about your, um, maybe the history of your of your research and, and how the threads have sort of woven back and sure. forth and, and what you're working on now? Well, I am, for lack of a better word, a data visualization generalist, which means I think I work across many different things. It might mean I just, have a hard time focusing on one thing. Mm-hmm. Another way to put it is I'm a full stack data visualization person. Maybe that's nicer, but that <laughs> means my my work ranges from low level graphical perception stuff, which I'll talk a little bit about today, all the way to devices and technologies, uh, hardware for data visualization, even straying into pure human computer interaction research. I've done 
work on pointing and selections and even electronic readers and all kinds of things for for, for those fields. So it's really wide. It's a, it's an interesting mix. I I guess I have a hard time nailing down exactly what I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about right. everything. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, well, there are two particular strands of research that I'm interested in. Um, one is your work on accessibility in data visualization, and the other is on your work on animation. Accessibility has been uh, a topic on the show the last few weeks, so I, I think that would be mm-hmm. nice to to continue the discussion. The last few folks I've spoken with are are more on the practitioner side of things, so I'm curious about your research on accessibility, um, and then we can talk about animation. Maybe just give us a quick roundup of your accessibility work. So it's interesting that this is happening because it seems like a lot of things are coming together. I was I've been listening to those recent episodes where there's been accessibility in in this podcast, yeah. and I think it's exciting. Uh, and it's curious how it happens because in our case, obviously these are well-documented situations and a lot of compelling research questions in how do we make data universally accessible? But in my case, it, it was a bit of a journey of discovery because about a year and a half ago, I was told that a student from University of Maryland was enrolling in my data visualization class. And this student was basically legally blind it was very jarring to us because we had not had this situation before. But of course, it may seem like a paradox, but of course, thinking about it, even a blind person deals with physical space. They have to navigate 3D worlds. They're very familiar with shapes just as, as we are. So it shouldn't be a surprise. But right. much of DataViz has basically uh, neglected to focus on this population. In our case, we came up with a very low-tech solution to make it possible for the student to take the course. Because, of course, he's not learning just how to read DataViz, but also how to create them if you're taking a course like mine. So we had to come up with a solution with just a metal board and magnets, where the assistant would arrange those magnets on the board so they would match what's on the slides, and he could explain and even create his own visualizations. Well, interesting. And then this has led to I read, you know, a big new research agenda in my lab with uh, two students who are working on various things from physicalization, you know, turning data into physical form so that you can feel them with your hands and fingertips or even your body, but also more traditional things like sound using audio and even some recent work where we're using smell. Oh, interesting. I love the fact, by the way, that this research track was inspired at least by a real life example or a real life challenge that you had to overcome. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's like a great way that research starts and just being able to help a student better yeah. understand the, the topic. Um, but can you talk about this research? And part of the thing that, that I find interesting about this discussion of accessibility is the difference between when we make static graphs where most people say, well, let's, you know, use different types of colors and that's but, but the big thing is alt text let's add that that mm-hmm. alt text and then the interactive side of things of data visualization where i'm not sure people have thought through a lot of the issues um, yeah so I mean, so i'm curious about that absolutely i think there are many things that what you touched upon that that is relevant to what we do overall the interesting thing and i know it's been noted before when we do improvements to help this population. And of course, this is not a small population. It's important to think of this because there's something like 300 million individuals that have visual impairments in the world. 
and 40 million of them are totally blind. And here in the US, it's somewhere between seven and 15. We've been working with the National Federation for the Blind in Baltimore. And it's exciting to see, you know, uh, many of these improvements like audiobooks came about because blind people wanted to read too. But of course, now millions of people who are not blind use them all the time. And right. that's true. That's, that's this curb cut effect that I heard discussed before, where mm-hmm. improvements for universal accessibility will help people who are not necessarily uh, in a wheelchair, but are temporarily under disadvantage. Right. And that's true here, too. I mean, you, you mentioned all text and all text are, are, are great. But the problem is a lot of the visualizations on the web, if you Google images uh, for a chart search, for example, you'll get lots and lots of images that don't have all text. They mm-hmm. are just pixel maps with charts like uh, bar charts or, or pie charts or something where the pixels themselves don't carry the data. And a screen reader will not know what to do with those because there's no alt text. And the screen reader, screen reader can't just turn the pixels into to natural language, of course. So in a project that we did a, uh, about a two years ago, we used machine learning to translate these images into shapes so that we could then recover the data from. So at the very least, we were able to replace an image of a bar chart or pie chart or line chart or something into mm. the data table where it was created, where that type of data is usually not available. So that's right. a first step. But of course, there, there should be more ways to do this. You mentioned interaction. In one of the projects that a student of mine is working on right now, he is working on building a little robot, a three-wheeled robot. It looks like a triangle, slice of your palm. Mm-hmm. And it has a handle that you can put your hand, hand on, and that handle can turn and it can vibrate. And the point of this device is that you could put it down. It's wireless. You put it down on a surface, a flat surface, and you connect using a Bluetooth or Wi-Fi connection to your phone or your laptop. And then you activate the device, and it will. you grab it, and it will start moving to describe a shape. And oh. you can feel, for example, I don't know, the stock market value of Google over time or, you know, the temperature around the world changing with seasonality or something. And of course, since these engines on this robot are back drivable, we can also use it for interactions. You can basically use that thing to explore a space as well. Huh. I mean, obviously there's a, there's a long uh, road ahead here, but do those sorts of devices, do you see them working differently in a, in a mobile environment than in a desktop environment? Yeah. So that, that's absolutely true. Many Mm. of the, accessibility devices out there are not necessarily mobile. A braille, a refreshable braille display, which can be really costly, that turn mm-hmm. text into braille characters. There are mobile versions of those, but they're small. They only maybe show 10 characters, whereas there's bigger right. ones. So that's certainly something that you have to keep in mind. Uh, this particular robot that we're working on, we're trying to make it mobile so that, of course, yeah. you can have it in your pocket and put it down on any right. surface. Right. But yeah, the, the, the thing that has happened that we've also been looking into is beyond that is screen readers with smartphones being so ubiquitous, where they're everywhere, has really revolutionized information access for blind people where they would use screen readers on their smartphone all the time. Right, because we're on it all the time. What about, have you thought about or done any work on other types of impairments? 
So I think, I think, I mean, I think we would probably both agree that that in the data viz or info viz community, the first thing we think about, I would say most people probably think about our vision uh, mm-hmm. impairments yes. or difficulties, right? But there are all other sorts of, of impairments or, or limit people's ability yeah. to access information. So physical Absolutely. disabilities, cognitive. Yeah. Have you thought about any? I mean, I don't know if you've, you've, you've thought about these or have started any research on these, but I am curious to to hear how, you know, the sorts of things that you may be uh, thinking about. Yeah, I mean, it's true that for vision, it happens to be a particularly, uh, I don't know, big elephant in the room for us data viz folks, because mm-hmm. we rely so much on the magic aspects of, of vision, and we right. sing its praises all the time, but we don't recognize that not everyone uh, has full use of their vision. Um, in terms of other types of disabilities or impairments, we haven't, our, in my group, we haven't looked at any of those beyond beyond vision, except, mm. you know, like I said, some of these research approaches are based on sensory substitution, which means, of course, you replace vision with another sense. And right. that type of philosophy, of course, can be applied let's say if you're deaf and you don't have use of your ears, you could use the same general approach of sensory substitution. And one of those that might be relevant is this, I mentioned early on, this use of smell, which sounds a little like a joke (laughs) because of course computer (laughs) interfaces don't typically smell. It's a very underused uh, sensory, uh, sensory channel. But again, here's the curb cut effect because there are situations where you cannot see, you know, you're blind perhaps, but you cannot, there are all the situations where you cannot look. So let's say you're, you're a fully sighted person, you're driving your car, you can't spend time looking at the screen. And then mm-hmm. uh, using sound or using, let's say, smell in this case could be useful. And I'm sure that could also be applied, like I said, to a, a deaf person or potentially someone with cognitive impairments because smell is such a primal type of sense. It's tied so strongly into memory. And yeah. then the project that we did, we've built three prototypes of olfactory displays. That's a technical name for a smell interface, essentially. Just like a screen is a visual display, mm-hmm. it generates colored pixels. An olfactory display generates smells. So we built uh, several prototypes of these, mobile ones, as well as tabletop ones. and. And the most recent one is, is a big device. It has 24 bottles of essential oils and little ultrasonic diffusers that we can turn on and off. And that j- just like a humidifier at home, we can generate and mix and blend smells and then send them into the, basically the nostrils of the user. We wow. haven't used them that much as a replacement, but more as a complement. But there yeah. are certainly situations where you could try to replace uh, vision instead of uh, instead of complementing it right wow that 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 is amazing um so let's 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 i'm gonna do see if i can do this this cool segue here um (laughs) so so we've talked about stat accessibility with static visualizations and interactive visualizations but somewhere in the middle somewhere are animated visualizations Mm -hmm. um and you've done some interesting work on animation um, and so, so maybe that wasn't a great segue. I don't know. Um, but anyway, <laughs> um, you've done some interesting work on animation and, and in the, the paper, at least 
the, the paper that I've read and we'll link to on the show notes. Um, uh, what I like about the framing of that paper is you bring it all the way back to to Gestalt principles, mm-hmm. which I don't know if a lot of people in the data viz field think of it that way, mm-hmm. right? They we we think of maybe you know pre attentive principles or mm-hmm. principles when it comes to static things that color or things are grouped together. But there are these principles about animation and motion, and so I like the way that that framing of mm-hmm. that paper. So I was hoping you could sort of explain that framing sure. and then talk about the actual research. Yeah, it was interesting to do a little bit of a journey back in time when we read, wrote this paper because graphical perception in general, I mentioned earlier, is this interesting intersection of vision science and perceptual psychology on the one hand and data visualization on the other hand where we're trying to figure out how can we build visualizations that match how our vision system works and how can we figure out how to make it better. And a lot of the seminal work, as you know, in graphical perception is relatively recent. I mean, it's people like Jacques Bertin, cartographer, I mean, some some time ago, but still not that long ago. And then uh, Bill Cleveland and McGill did, did work on graphical perception and for statistical mm-hmm. visualizations. But if you rewind a little further, you'll see that a lot of the work that was done on early work on visual perception was in the in the early 1900s. And it was called the Berlin School in Germany of Experimental Psychology. And they eventually came up with this notion of gestalt psychology, which is a theory of mind talking about how the whole is bigger than the parts and and how that works in terms of the things we see. And essentially, they came up with maybe something like five or six so-called gestalt laws that say how we humans group elements we see in our field of view into into whole components so things like proximity when we have Mm -hmm. several things close to each other we tend to think of them as a group and that's commonly seen you know you have a scatter plot of dots and if they're grouped together you think of them oh those are the certain cluster of of behavior and then you have things like similarity where two objects that have similar visual appearance, same color or same shape, you tend to group them together. And then there's additional ones. The thing that we were interested in this particular study that you mentioned was the law of common fate, which is the only gestalt psychology law that deals with things changing over time. So basically it says if several elements are behaving in a similar way, we humans tend to think of them as having the same or common fate, and then we group them together. Commonly, we use this idea for animation. So elements that move in the exact direction and speed tend to be grouped. But what we looked at in this particular study was whether this idea of changing together applied not just to animation, or at least not not just to motion, elements moving in the same direction and speed, but also to dynamic behavior, like whether they grew together or shrunk together, or whether they changed color together. Mm. So as we are looking at an animated bar chart, for example, let's mm-hmm. take the bar chart race. Um, right, yeah. We, yeah, so, so as we view those, we see them moving together as a singular group. Yeah, 
Yeah, so that so well, they have to move together in the same rate. So if you have a big uh, bar chart and you have two bars that even if they're not next to each other, if they have the same behavior, so they they grow about the same clip, then mm -hmm. that the notion is that that you think of as, as two elements at the same time. Another example is, uh, sorry, one group that moved together as one. Another example right. is Hans Rosling's animated scatter plots or Gapminder, where you know he talks about demographics, how countries move and increase in, in economic status. And if you squint, even if those types of visualizations are really confusing, you know, hundreds of dots moving together, you tend to see trends where a cluster of, of these countries, even if they're a little scattered, happen to have the same economic growth, they tend to stick together and become more of a unit in your in your mind's eye. Mm -hmm. Right. So let me ask let me ask you this question because there are probably people who are listening to this discussion and thinking, oh that's interesting. And I can see how that's true when I look at the Rosling uh, bubble plots move how this cluster, you know, I kind of see mm -hmm. this cluster of dots moving, but I, but I wonder if people are also thinking, what does this mean for me as a creator of visualizations? Right. So if someone were to say to you, okay, I'm a, I'm an interactive, uh, data viz developer, you know, how do I take the findings from your paper and apply it to my work? Yeah, the, the, it's, it's a great question because our study is relatively basic. So there's clearly some explanation needed to say, how do you apply it in practice? I think the basic finding from our study was confirming something that I think many of us already knew. Sometimes that's, you know, research uh, becomes. And in this case, it is that animation is extremely powerful. When we had elements moving in our study, that overshadowed everything. So. Elements that move together are much more tightly visually grouped than elements that change size or change color or even are close together in space. So animation is maybe the strongest visual cue you can use in a, in a data visualization, which means mm. that you need to use it with caution. I mean, I, I know that's what, yeah. what uh, Uncle Ben says, You with great power <laughs> comes great responsibility. So be careful with your data visualizations whenever you use animation, because it's going to grab people's eye. That's right. the clear thing. Yeah, no, that, that, that's really important. And, and just as a, a parenthetical, when you said, um, that's what, uh, that's what uncle Ben says. My, my actual first thought was not uh, Spider-Man. My first thought was, um, that's what you guys call Ben Schneiderman, but maybe it's a, <laughs> a Spider-Man. Yeah. Um, amazing Schneiderman. That's true. <laughs> um, okay. So this is great. So, um, because I think when I uh, talk to students about static visualizations and ask them to identify the things that draw their attention, the, the big one that stands out is color. Uh, but mm -hmm. as we, but if, when we move from a static visualization to an interactive or animated world, we may need to be thinking about how the motion may supersede some of these, uh, other characteristics that in a static world are the things that pop out to us. Mm -hmm. Yes, Interesting. absolutely. Yeah. The, the other finding that we uncovered was that we were able to confirm that the original formulation of this law of common fate, where they basically said in a much more generous way that anything that changes together will be perceived as having a common fate. Whereas in, in data visualization practice, 
many of us have taken this to mean that things are animated and move together, that's when the law of common fate applies. But our study was able to show that it's actually not just animation when things move together in the same speed and direction, but also when they change color together or when they change size together. So the grouping strength was stronger, not as strong as moving together, but still strong enough compared to all of the other grouping variables. So that right. means that you could, for example, if you wanted to use a data visualization and use animation to some degree, but not as strongly as having elements move together, you could have them change color together or change size together. That would, that would be another cue that you could use. Mm -hmm. So we're adding to the arsenal of data visualization designers. Right, right, great. So uh, one last thing is on the Maryland Human Computer Interaction Lab, you have a symposium coming up and I wanted to give you a couple of minutes to talk about that and where people can find speakers and more information about sure, it because I've attended in the past and it's, and it's a great, it's a really great event. Yes, we've done this for 36 years, so it's oh, wow. been since the beginning of the lab. So we're longer running than many other data visualization conferences in the field. So mm -hmm. yes, our annual symposium is happening at the end of May. Right now, we're trying to figure out exactly how to proceed with it. It's probably going to be pre-recorded talks with a bunch of popular science style blog posts about the research. All of the research is going to be about work that has happened in the last year in the research lab. A lot of it is, is students presenting. I'll be giving a keynote speaking about data visualization for the blind. So that's mm. a lot of this you heard today will be expanded upon and explained. But there will be also interesting other talks given by my fellow faculty members and students. So it's a full day thing. Uh, usually, as I said, we meet in person. Of course, now we are rethinking and reorganizing this, but still I encourage you to keep an eye out. All of the information is available on the HCIL website. So that will be hcil.umd.edu. It's great. Yeah, I will post the link to that mm -hmm. so people can can take a look. It is a great event. And, um, you know, with pre-recorded uh, lectures and, and blog posts, maybe there can be a, a different type of communication between yes. the speakers and the, and the audience. So that's 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 great. Um, well, Nicholas, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been great chatting with you. I love this work and I look forward to uh, at the very least watching your keynote address because uh, I'm interested to see what other thoughts and, and more research you guys are doing. So uh, thanks great. for coming on the show. It's been great. Absolutely. Thank you. And thanks for everyone for tuning in to this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned a little bit about how to make your data visualization accessible and how to think about uh, animating your data visualizations or at least reading animated data visualizations when you see them out there in the wild. So again, stay safe, stay healthy. And until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.